those of us, most of us were at the previous meeting, the early meeting, a remembrance meeting. And uh, the, the theme, the thought, it was obvious that the Spirit was working. Because portions of Scripture were opened, and verses of song were sung, that I'm sure all brought us to the foot of the cross. It brought me to tears this morning. As we thought of the deep, deep love of Jesus. And what it cost him. And what it should mean to us. And various thoughts were brought out in how the Lord became sin for us. And that's exactly the theme of what the Lord had laid upon my heart. And the key verse for this morning, we're not going to begin it, but the key verse for this morning, of course, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Indeed. Beautiful verse. There are a few things in scriptures that are very difficult for me to get my, there are many things, but there are a few in particular that are difficult for me to get my mind on. And one is how the ever-living one, the eternal one, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the great I am, could die. Death is impossible to him. No weapon fashioned can destroy him. No spear, no sword can slay the Creator. And yet he died. Another one that's so difficult to wrap my head around is this theme of this morning. How that he that is without sin, that could not sin, that cannot bear sin, cannot stand sin, can become sin, can become the curse, the curse of sin for us. How can that be? How can the immortal, ever-living Jehovah, how can he die? And how can the perfect creator God, the sinless one, become sin for us? And this morning we consider him and his love toward us, and how he did become sin for us. How did he show his love for us? I'd like us to look back to the Old Testament, beginning in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 3, a few verses in regard to the sin offerings. Well, it's going to be more than a few verses, but we'll start chapter 3 with a few verses. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Verse 7, if he offer a lamb for his offering, 
Then shall he offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering, and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood thereof round about upon the altar. Verse 12. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of it, and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood thereof upon the altar round about. So we see here the offerings for sin and how they're to be done. And this was to be done for the individual and his family. You know, I've often wondered, and especially this week, I've wondered, when you think of the, the well, think of the, think of the people of Israel. It's estimated, most estimates are that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of three million people crossed the Red Sea and entered the wilderness. Three million. And immediately God set them in order. And they were to be ordered by their tribes and by their families. And there was the order of the march, and as the march ended then, of course, there was the order of the camp. And so we see as these people came into their camp, perhaps after a day's journey or a week's journey or a month's journey, that they would set up a camp. And in some cases, that camp was to be set up for years in one place. So you would have at the vanguard, the three tribes to the east, then would come the Levites, and they would set up the tabernacle. The, the, whole, the, the center, the heart of the camp was to be that tabernacle. And there the Shekinah glory was ever before the people. On the four sides of the tabernacle was the camp of Levi, divided into four sections. To the east were the three tribes that were the vanguard. To the north, three tribes. To the south, three tribes. To the west, three tribes. And there, not in a small valley, but it must have been on a great plain that three million people could set up in an orderly fashion. Here it was, this camp set up. And in the center, the very heart of the camp, in scale, it was minute. When you think of the scale of three million people and their tents, the tabernacle in the center was just a dot, wasn't it? But from it came the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And it was the heart and the soul. It was to be the, the place that the children of Israel looked to. It was there that they were to go to observe the commandments and the laws, to observe the sacrifices. And there in that plain with the camp stretched out in the shape of a giant cross, I often wonder, did, were the livestock of this three million strong people, were they interspersed among the tents, or were they on the, in the outlying areas? And were they communally owned, or did each family own a dozen or so? So when it, be, when it was time for you to make your annual sacrifice, where would you go? Would you go to the owner of the sheep? Did you, have a, did you have a sheep or a goat or a bull tied to your tent? And, and I wonder at the logistics of all this. Sam probably knows the answer. <laughs> but was there individual ownership of animals? Or did one, one have to go out and inspect in the herd? Was it communal ownership that you were allotted to take one a year from the communal herd? Or two or three or whatever it may be. But it was your responsibility to go and inspect to go and choose that lamb or that goat or that bullock 
and study it for three days. Bring it home and look for a blemish in it. And then you were to bring it to the gate of the tabernacle. You couldn't boldly approach into the holy place, but you brought it to the gate of the tabernacle, and there the sons of Levi, the sons of Aaron, would come, and they would take it from you. But you would first put your hand on the head of that lamb or that goat, symbolically confessing your sins and placing the sin upon that goat or that lamb. And woe betide you if you brought a blemished lamb. But there you would. And it said that, it didn't say that the priests would then kill it. It says that you would, the head of your household, you would kill it for you and your family. You would transfer your guilt, your sin, onto the head of the lamb or the goat. And then you, with your hand, with your knife, would slit the throat of that animal. And to you, it became so real. For us, we read the story of... But imagine being the man that took that lamb there, or that goat there, and at the gate would meet the priest. The priest would hand you the knife. You would place your hand on that animal. You would confess your sins and the sins of your family. And then you would plunge in the knife. The animal would crumple, the blood would flow. To you it became very real. The efficacy of the flowing of that blood for you was something very real. And there was a cost involved. Let's turn over to chapter to uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13 says, And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin which they have sinned against is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall bring of the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood. The priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. And it goes on. Here we have another sacrifice, and it is for this, the sins of the congregation. And it is represented by the heads of the families. It says that the elders of the congregation shall bring a bullock. And they communally shall place their hands upon the head of the bullock, symbolically confessing the sins of the congregation, and laying those sins upon the head of the sacrifice. And then Aaron would kill that bullock and offer it before the Lord. But it goes on a little farther this time. It says that the high priest, the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. And so now we see we've gone from the individual and his family, we've gone to the congregation. 
and how it is the responsibility not only of the individual but of the congregation, of the people of God, to judge sin, to have their sin purged. And so the congregation, the elders of the congregation, bring the communal sacrifice before the priest. And they communally lay their hands upon it, confessing the sins of the people. And here it says, even if it's a sin of ignorance or a sin of omission, that they are too, God is not to be trifled with. There, there are to be no chances taken when it comes to the, the purging of sin, the atonement of sin. And so they bring it, even for sins of ignorance. And, and it says that the the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. It is said by some that the significance of the seven times of sprinkling the blood before the veil is symbolic of the number of completion. Two times, one time might be adequate. How much blood do you need? It says the priest was required to sprinkle it seven times before the altar. Why seven? Because God asked them to do it seven times. Because it's not our way that leads us to salvation, is it? We have to come God's way. And if God says, stand on your head seven times, you must do it seven times. What did Elisha tell Naaman when he went, when he came to be cleansed of his leprosy? He said, dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. So there we see that this is God's way. This is God's plan. Naaman thought it was just lunacy. He says, are not the waters of Syria better than these, the far, far of the Havana? He says, and you want me to dip in that filthy river seven times? And you know, he did. And after the fifth time, he was still a leper, wasn't he? And after the sixth time, he was still a leper, wasn't he? And then the seventh time, he came out clean. Because he did it God's way. He followed God's word. We don't know the reason for seven here, but it's God's way, and they did it seven times. Some say it's the number of completion. Seven days in the week, the seven churches, and so on. There are many examples. And others say that we sing a hymn, Five dreadful wounds he bears, received on Calvary. And yet some say that really it's seven wounds he bears. Because the blood began to flow when he was scourged in the praetorium. And then again on the pavement when the crown of thorns was placed upon his head, blood flowed again. And then we have the five. The five other ones. So seven times the blood of the Lord Jesus flowed for sin. I like to think that this is perhaps a picture of that. Seven times before the before the altar, before the veil. Chapter 14, same book. Chapter 14 deals with the day of atonement. Every day throughout the year except the Sabbath. Sacrifices were made continually before the Lord. Perhaps a schedule was made up among the tribes that they wouldn't overload it too much on any given day. 
that had kept those Levites hopping six days a week. Think of the amount of firewood that had to be brought to keep those flames going perpetually. And the coals that were constantly burning. And the animals that were slain every day for sin. But this was special. One day a year, the Day of Atonement. I'm sorry, chapter 16. You're probably a little confused. <laughs> chapter 16, the Day of the, the Atonement. And the Day of the Atonement was a busy day for the priests. Because it wasn't just one sacrifice, but it was a day of ritual. And it began, let's, uh, let's begin reading in uh, chapter, uh, verse, right at verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the, into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place, this way, with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. This is not the gorgeous apparel of the priest with the blues, the purples, and the bells, and the pomegranates, and the ephod, and the stones. And this is the white linen of the priest on the day of atonement. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Look at that again. It says, two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them both before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the 
midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation whom he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And we'll stop there. Here, of course, is the, the story we all know of how the high priest, one time, once a year, went into the holiest, and not without blood. We read many of the details of what really happened in the New Testament, don't we, in the, in the, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. The significance of it. And again, the, the, the vanity of it, that it had no lasting effect. But it was to be taken seriously. You know that this Aaron only went into that holiest of holies in fear and trembling. Jewish writers say that that high priest would not only go in in fear and trembling, but he would enter in sideways with his head downcast. And as he left, he would leave backing up. It was not a light matter to enter into the presence of God. Even when you've been cleansed, even when you're in the ceremonial garment, even when you had blood, it was something to be feared and respected entering into the presence of God. And so we, we read in this story, we're very familiar with this story. Then we go on to the other thing. It doesn't say there were two other offerings. There was one other offering, but it was two kids of the goats. But it was considered one offering, wasn't it? that scapegoat offering. And then how that Aaron, or the high priest, would by lot choose which goat was to die and which was to live. It said that he had a pocket with two stones in it, and he would pull those out, and they, they would be the lots of which, which goat lived or which goat died. One goat was to be that offering for sin that was conducted virtually every day, but it was for the sins of the people. And again, his hand was put upon the head of the goat. But the other goat, which was a part of the same sacrifice, it was like two heads of one coin, two sides of one coin, was to be released into the wilderness, it was to say, into a far 
unto a land not inhabited. And the goats shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and she, he shall let go of the goat in the wilderness. This is signifying that the sins of not just the man and his family, and not just the congregation, but of the nation, were vicariously put upon the scapegoat. We know the sacrifice of atonement, the sin, sin offering of atonement, was not let go, was it? That blood flowed, and it flowed that day, and it was sprinkled on the horns of the altar, and before and on the mercy seat. But here's another picture of how the sins of the people were not only covered by blood, but they were sent far away. And so the two goats, though they had very separate destinies, didn't they? They represented one sacrifice, one where the price was paid and another where the sin was sent away, was taken care of and sent away. Some people say that the, the, the other goat is a picture of, of laying sin upon say I've read some weird things when I was studying for this, some very unusual things in this. But I think that the Bible teaches that this is an example of how the sin is laid upon a sacrifice. Not an escapee, not someone that's going to get away with that sin, but that sin was laid upon him. And a fit man would lead that goat out into the wilderness. Jewish tradition said that they would tear a piece of red wool and tie a piece of this red wool to the horn of the scapegoat and tie another piece of it to the gate of the temple. And the fit man would take that goat out into the wilderness to a place where it couldn't return from. Some say it was set on a path that would intentionally cause it to die because it was considered a curse or bad luck. If that scapegoat made it back in among the people, he's bringing the sin back in. So either through intention or through the fact that a domesticated goat will probably not survive too long in the wilderness, there was very little chance that that goat would ever be seen again. And other tradition says that there would be others that would be set at the mountain pass or to ensure that that goat never made it back to the uh, inhabited areas of the people. It's also said that as that piece of cloth weathered upon the gate of the temple, the bleaching of the sun and of the rain that eventually that red cloth would turn white. Symbolizing that those sins that were sent away with the scapegoat had been put away forever. Or at least for that season. And it, and it said in Jewish tradition that that invariably happened. That over time that red would fade to pink and then finally to white. And the people would rejoice that that scapegoat offering is accepted of the It is also said in Jewish tradition that in AD 30, the last time they sent out the scapegoat, they tied that cloth to the gate of the temple. And it's said that that cloth did not fade for the next 40 years until that temple was destroyed. I can't verify that, but it's been read and it's, and it's in uh, ancient writings as well. That the last time they sent out the scapegoat, the year that our Lord was slain, they tied the traditional red wool to the gate, and for 40 years it would not fade, and the temple was destroyed. 
because the congregation, the people, the nation had rejected their Savior. They had not laid their hand upon the sacrifice. And so we come to our Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 23. Time is flee uh, fleeting. <coughs> We're only going to go till one o'clock today. <laughs> Luke chapter twenty-three. I'd like to go back and review the story of Barabbas, <coughs> but we don't have time for that. But Barabbas, in some strange way, is really a symbol of that scapegoat. There's a complete study in the, in the story of Barabbas and how his full name was Yeshua Barabbas. And when the two men were brought before the people, there was Yeshua Barabbas and Yeshua Bar Joseph. But the name Yeshua Barabbas means Jesus, son of the Father. He was a type. But this one, Jesus, the true son of the father was not spared. The people chose poorly, didn't they? And Israel was judged from that day on as a nation. God still chooses to bless each individual Jew, but the nation is being judged and is under judgment right now. Story of Barabbas, a beautiful story. Verse 27 says. <clears throat> And there followed him a great company of women and of people and of women who also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wounds that never bear, and the paths which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. And the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. 
And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. We have the Lord Jesus. He leaves the praetorium. And he's led as a lamb to the slaughter. The Lord Jesus at this time, even though he has been wading through the filth of sin for 33 years, even though he's been surrounded by sin, he has touched sinful men. He has healed. He has brought sight to the blind. He has cured the leper. Walking through a world of sin, yet untouched by it. Holy pure, holy above sin, holy without sin, incapable of sin. And yet we were reminded a couple, years, a couple weeks ago when we reviewed the story of Lazarus and how the Lord came and met the two sisters. And the two sisters weeping said to him, Oh, Master, if you'd only been here. And those pointing words that said, Jesus wept. Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus was dead. Jesus knew that Lazarus would be alive again in moments. Jesus didn't weep because he knew that knowing that Lazarus was not going to inherit eternal life, he wept because he saw around him, among people he loved, the effects of sin. Sin brings death, doesn't it? And death brings with it sorrow. And so this young man that died was being bewailed, lamented by his sisters. And the poignancy of that how it touched the Lord. That the effects of sin through the ages had brought countless pain, suffering, and death, sickness, sadness, hatred, crime, all the effects of sin. And the Lord Jesus saw in that moment and was moved with compassion the tears of these women. So the Lord Jesus pure and precious, perfect, holy, carried his cross to Calvary, untouched by sins. There he was nailed to that cross, untouched by sin. Until they stood that cross up and raised him on it, then he became a curse. Yet without sin. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was without sin. When he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he was without sin. And then the sun was darkened. And for three hours there, the Lord Jesus Christ was made sin for us. We heard the story this morning of how this filthy mouth and filthy handed child with pizza sauce all over him wanted to be held up, wanted to be picked up by his father. And yet, can you imagine if you were wearing a white suit or a white shirt or a white dress or white gloves and this child covered with the filthy pizza sauce wanted to be picked up by you? You couldn't do it. How much more could the Father?
not touch his son on the cross. In those three dark hours, the Lord Jesus became the most hideous thing the earth has ever seen. Because my sin was poured into him. Your sin poured into him. It was there in those dark hours that the Lord Jesus was made sin for us. And like a sponge soaking up the sins of the world, he took it upon himself. And so he had to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because that part of the Godhead that dwells eternally in heaven, in perfection, in glory, sinless state, could not look upon this hideous thing, this thing that became a holy sin. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then that eternal one that ever lived at the Alpha and the Omega, who no weapon could kill, had to complete the judgment for sin. It wasn't enough that blood was shed, was it? The blood had to be shed, but there had to be death. And this perfect one, this eternal one that could not die, gave up his own spirit. You might say he killed himself. And then, the act was complete. And they're bearing our sins away in his own body as a scapegoat did. The veil of the temple signif being signified that it's that it's, that uh, sacrifice was accepted, it was torn into. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The second part is our response, that he, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, have, have we again looked at our Lord Jesus Christ and seen not just the man who stood in our way, in our place, the man who stood for us, but that one who became sin for us. He did it for a purpose, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, it would be vain if we were not conformed to the image of his son. He did not die simply that we could be saved from hell, death and hell, but that we would be conformed to his image, that we would be the righteousness of God in him, that we would be clothed, accept his righteousness, the hymn writer writes, The Holy One who knew no sin, God made him sin for us. The Savior died our souls to win upon the shameful cross. His precious blood alone availed to wash our sins away. Through weakness he or hell prevailed, through death he won the day. Another hymn that we don't sing says, My sins were laid on Jesus the spotless Lamb of God. He bore them all and freed me from the accursed love. My guilt was borne by Jesus. He cleansed the crimson stains in his own blood most precious and not a spot remains. What a Savior we have. He became the curse for us. He had borne our sins away, but only at the cost of becoming sin 
Imagine that. He who could not die, died for us. He who could not sin, became sin for us. We read in Isaiah of how he became so marred more than any man. And it was not merely by the stripes and the crown. It was by the, the sin load that was laid on him. And he has no beauty that we should desire him. But now when we look upon our Savior, we look past the wounds, don't we? We look past the wounds and we see the love. We look at the wounded hands and we see the hands that are open to pick us up. Because he's clothed us in his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for that perfect one who knew no sin. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we would all say we long to see him and thank him face to face. Father, we long to touch him. To recline our breasts, our heads upon his breast. We long to look into his eyes. And tell him that we too love him. As he first loved us. Father, what a Savior you've given us. We ask thy blessing upon each of us. In our, in our Savior's precious name.